Welcome to That Said. I am Michael Zeldin. On today's show, we will speak with Jim Acosta, CNN anchor and chief domestic correspondent. Jim is the author of Enemy of the People, A Dangerous Time to Tell the Truth in America. Jim is an Emmy Award-winning journalist who most recently won the Truth to Power Award from the New York Press Club in 2019. Jim, why don't we start by you telling us about yourself? Yours is a very interesting background. Yeah, I, uh, I'm one of those uh, rare birds. Uh, I was actually born and raised in the Washington, D.C. area. Uh, so grew up uh, just outside Washington and Virginia. Uh, my uh, father, as I've, I've written about, talked about from time to time as a Cuban refugee. Uh, but I was primarily raised by my mom. She, she was a single mom. Uh, went through the public school system in Northern Virginia, went to Annandale High School, and then went to James Madison University. So I'm a, I'm a D.C. kid. I, I plead guilty to that. Uh, but I, I went up uh, through the business of uh, television news the old-fashioned way. I worked through uh, local news, uh, first uh, getting a coffee for people here at Channel 5 in D.C., and then went off to Knoxville, Tennessee, uh, Dallas, Texas, Chicago, uh, and then I was hired by CBS News, worked in New York, in Atlanta for CBS, then moved to CNN in New York, and then moved down to Washington to come back home. Um, and, you know, it, it was, it's been a long, strange journey, but I learned a lot along the way. Um, and, you know, I, because I grew up in Washington, I, I certainly had an interest in politics. Um, and, you know, I think that's part of the reason why I, uh, you know, got into political journalism at, at a pretty... Uh, early start in, in my career. Um, covered. Uh, I've now covered five different presidential campaigns uh, for a network, uh, and starting with John Kerry's campaign in 2004, uh, then covered Obama versus Hillary in 2008, the Obama campaign in 2008, uh, Mitt Romney in 2012, and then Donald Trump in 2016 and in 2020. Um, and, you know, we could talk about all of this. Obviously, the, the last four years are unlike, you know, anything that I experienced in the previous 20 years. Uh, and that's for, you know, various reasons that we can talk about. But, uh, yeah, very proud of my my D.C. roots uh, and, and and proud that I, you know, went up through this business the old fashioned way. I still keep in touch with the people I work with in local news. Uh, and uh, there are a lot of folks, a lot of hardworking journalists uh, on the local news level at both television stations and newspapers who are trying to do it right um, and, uh, you know, working hard every day. And, you know, my hat's off to all. I'm proud of that part of my career, too. Yeah. And one thing I um, got um, a, a true sense of in reading the book is what an impact your dad being a, a, a person who arrived here at a young age from Cuba, 1962, and how that informed your passion about the immigration issue. Yeah, and not only the immigration issue, which I'm happy to talk about, but also, you know, uh, valuing uh, and freedom of speech. Uh, you know, some of these things that we sometimes take for granted in this country, you know, Cuba, they don't have uh, freedom of the press. Uh, they don't have free speech. Uh, they don't have free elections and so on. And, uh, you know, as I, as I like to say, I'm a proud Cuban-American, but I don't want America to become more like Cuba. Um, but uh, putting that to the side, yes, in terms of the immigration issue, my dad came over in 1962, three weeks before the Cuban Missile Crisis. Uh, he and my grandmother came over together and immediately um, after arriving in Miami, moved to northern Virginia uh, there was a small Cuban enclave there at the time. And, you know, as I, I, as I like to tell folks, 
uh, when they arrived in, in Virginia, um, this was uh, right on the verge of their first winter in the U.S. There is no winter in Cuba. Uh, it's, it's warm pretty much all the time. And there was a Presbyterian church in Vienna, Virginia, right outside Washington that helped uh, my dad and grandmother get started, gave them coats and sweaters and uh, things like that so they can stay warm. My dad talks about how he had this elementary school teacher in Vienna who would pull him aside in class and teach him how to read and write. And, you know, he has more of, a, I, I call him a Cuban redneck because he has more of a Virginia accent than he does a Spanish or Cuban accent. Um, and so anybody who's from Virginia, you know, my age would know what that's about because when I was growing up, it was a bit more Southern than, um, yeah, no way. And it's that kindness and generosity that was shown to my dad and my grandmother, uh, that really stays with me. And it, it you know, it's such a stark contrast with the immigrant experience that people undergo today. Uh, you know, John F. Kennedy wasn't referring to immigrants at that time as rapists and criminals. Uh, they, they weren't uh, taking children who would have been my dad's age, you know, and, and separating them from their parents uh, and sometimes putting them in, inflicting psychological harm on them. Um, my dad, even though it was 1962, had a very different immigrant experience. And I like to talk about that to remind people that in this country, we have a tradition of welcoming immigrants to this country. It doesn't mean everybody uh, here is welcoming them with open arms. There's always been a nativist streak uh, in American politics that there's nothing new about that. Uh, but there's such a level of animosity that is generated by the president, by people inside the administration toward immigrants. That I think I think it's worth reflecting on and not to filibuster here, not to not, it's worth reflecting on. Uh, that there there was a different mentality about uh, immigrants and immigration, refugees and so on, uh, you know, not so long ago. Yeah. So, Jim, most people see you on television in three in three positions, either at the press conference, if there is one um, on the South Lawn where the helicopter um, is, and then on the, the North Lawn in the West uh, Northwest corner of the White House, where you do your live shots from. Um, in, in the evenings. But I think people would be interested to know like what it is that you do. What, what is your day? I, I know there's no such thing as a typical day because during all the years I spent with you at CNN, I would see you early morning, late at night, middle of the, I mean, your hours were insane. Uh, but, but tell us if you can, because there are a lot of journalism students here, what is it to be the White House correspondent. What do you do? How do you gather your mm. sources? What is Pebble Beach, et cetera? Well, you have two different experiences. One is a, a Trump experience and the other is a um, non-Trump experience. And when I covered Barack Obama, you know, you were in pursuit of uh, what policies and initiatives, uh, you know, was President Obama up to or pursuing at any given moment? Um, and I, I did cover Obama during the second term. So there were some challenges in his second term that he didn't face in his first term. Uh, the spread of ISIS in the Middle East, uh, the VA uh, scandal that occurred over at the Veterans Administration, um, the uh, Obamacare website debacle. I mean, those were all things. Uh, and there may be folks on the left who are saying, why is he saying those things about Obama? There were problems in the Obama administration, too, and we had to cover them. And so you had to... Um, Talk to your sources, talk to people inside the administration, try to figure out what's going on. Uh, cultivate sources up on Capitol Hill. That's something that isn't really 
uh, thought of as being a part of a White House correspondence job, but you have to talk to people up on the Hill to hear what they're saying about what's going on in the administration. Maybe there's a congressman or a senator who has spoken to the president or top official behind the scenes who can give you some insights uh, in terms of what's going on uh, on a policy development level. Now, uh, uh, that's just a, a shorthand of you know, what we did during the Obama administration. Uh, we traveled overseas, so on, briefings and, and, and the like. Uh, during Trump, it's a completely different experience because, and we can explore this further, obviously, but, you know, when, you know, and this goes back to the 2016 campaign, when then-candidate Trump is referring to the press as the disgusting news media, the dishonest news media, liars, scum, and thieves, he's already put a bullseye on our backs. And this is before he even became president. We're at rallies, tens of thousands of people screaming at us. Trump supporters coming up to us in our press pen, calling us traitors and so on. He rolled a lot of this act into the Oval Office, started calling us fake news, uh, then the enemy of the people, and you know, just proceeded to go on uh, a bender of lies that has not uh, abated to, to this day. And you know, when the Washington Post fact checker uh, arrives at you know, some 20,000, uh, 22,000 uh, falsehoods and half-truths, mistruths, and so on since coming into office, that puts the press in a very different position than it was in previous administrations. We are, we are then fact checkers. We became fact checkers in real time. Uh, we're getting tweets at seven o'clock in the morning. Uh, he's making statements in the Rose Garden, in the Oval Office that need to be fact checked. And, you know, that is, I think, one of the areas that put us diametrically opposed uh, in, in, the, in the minds of many Trump supporters of the president because Trump supporters saw us as constantly fact-checking him and correcting the record and saying, well, this is not true, this is not true, and so on. And, uh, you know, the thing that I ask people all the time when I talk to them about this is what in the world were we supposed to do otherwise? You know, we of course had to set the record straight, had to make sure people, uh, what would say the truth had we not done that? In addition to that, the president uh, was breaking off uh, he and, and traditions, um, you know, going after uh, the, you know, our sense of an independent judicial system in this country, of the judicial branch of government, people like Sally Yates, uh, you know, talking about, you know, judges and and so on. I mean, these are these are norms and traditions that just had never been breached before. And so we were covering those sorts of things, too. Um, all of this in real time. Uh, and, uh, you know, you would have White House press secretaries coming into the briefing room and just telling us flat out lies. Sean Spicer, you know, the inauguration for President Trump was the largest in the history of, of the world and so on. Um, that put us in a position where, um, you know, and I, I describe it as being of having a, an an adversarial relationship with the White House, with the president, because we're just trying to keep the facts straight and make sure people have um, what's happening in the news every day. Uh, and we, we can explore that further, but um, you know, norms and traditions like you were talking about immigration a few moments ago, you know, having a Muslim ban very shortly after coming into the office, uh, firing the FBI director, because he's snooping around in the Russia probe because the FBI is conducting a Russia investigation. There were so many things. It was at a breakneck speed um, that, you know, in many ways we were, we became breaking news reporters 
uh, and fact checkers, you know, all, all at once and with a target on our back at the same time. So that's why I separate, you know, when you ask what's it like being a White House correspondent, you separate the two experiences. But we still had to develop sources, still had to talk to people inside Trump world, still had to talk to people inside the White House. And those people were often very happy to talk to you and tell you what's going on. We had, there was a, so much factional infighting going on in the early days of the Trump administration that you had sources who wanted to talk to you to talk about Kelly and Conway and sources who wanted to talk to you about Sean Spicer and Ryan's Priebus and so on. Um, and that presented challenges as well, because you can't put all of those things on the air. You can't put all those things in print. You have to sort out what is factual infighting and where, you know, where is some useful information that, that can help us put uh, stories together. But two very, very different experiences. But, you know, uh, you sort of got to use two different sections of your brain uh, in, in covering these two very different administrations. But um, certainly kept us on our toes. No yeah. question about it. Well, and, 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 and away from home which is the thing that I appreciated most seeing you there at CNN, how, what a toll it takes to, to do the job that, that you do and how Absolutely. people don't appreciate the, 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 the time commitment uh, that, that it requires, regardless of who is the president. Now, you, you started right. um, leading into the campaign. You, you were put on the Trump campaign, uh, assigned to the Trump campaign in January uh, 2016, and you write, and I'll read it, you say, quote, I've never seen anything like this before. Never before have I seen such an assault on, on, on the truth. And there's a lot to get to about what's going on now, but if you would take us a little bit into the campaign and what, what it was like um, as a member of the media, uh, maybe there's one or two stories that are, that are indicative of, of what covering the campaign meant, because it bleeds into how the relationship you know, evolved when Trump became president. Yeah, I mean, I, I described um, a little bit what like what the 2016 experience was like, uh, you know, it, you know, it's hard to, um, you know, illustrate how disturbing it is to have a presidential candidate whip up, you know, 10, 20, 30,000 people into such a frenzy that they are screaming at you and calling, calling you all sorts of names, telling you that they want to uh, kick your ass out in the parking lot and so on. But that's literally the experience that we had during that campaign. And, um, you know, there were some moments, obviously, that I think ratcheted up some of those tensions. Uh, Donald Trump, uh, in part because, you know, he was a New York businessman and, uh, and media hound who thought, uh, you know, appropriate press coverage was, you know, a bunch of reporters come out and listen to him unveil Trump steaks or Trump wine or Trump airlines, and that the press was primarily there to promote his businesses. And when he jumped into the presidential ring, it's a very different experience. You know, people want to know what you're going to do about health care, what you're going to do about the national debt and what you're going to do about uh, abortion and so on. And, uh, you know, he was not ready for those kinds of questions. In addition to that, there was just scrutiny that, you know, needed to be applied to what he was up to. He was he was claiming that he was raising money for veterans causes. And then there was there were questions about whether or not the money was actually going to these veterans causes. And that precipitated a press conference that we had in May 2016, where he, uh, you know, he called on me for a question. And then he said, I, I know who you are. I've seen you on TV. You're a real beauty, aren't you? And uh, it wasn't meant as a compliment. He referred to uh, one of my other colleagues 
uh, as a total sleaze, I believe. Uh, Tom Yamas from ABC was a wonderful guy, great reporter. And that was sort of the beginning, sort of the early shots that were fired uh, at us. And then towards the uh, tail end of that campaign, you know, he really wasn't taking that many questions from us. Some of these questions were starting to come up about the campaign's relationship with the Russians uh, and his attitude towards Vladimir Putin, why it seemed he never really said a negative thing about Vladimir Putin. And I asked him a question, you know, at a press conference in July of 2016, why won't you get tough on Putin? You know, why, why won't you do that? And that was when he proceeded to say, uh, Russia, if you're listening, I hope you find Hillary Clinton's emails. Uh, you'll be rewarded mightily by the press. And it became one of these infamous moments of, that later became of high interest in the Russia investigation, because as it turns out, talk about a little bit of this in the book, you know, other reporters have talked about this at great length. It was at that moment when the hacking began. And, you know, we, we don't want to go back and open up that can of worms. But, you know, there there seemed to be some sort of cause and effect between the president's, you know, or the president uh, presidential candidate Trump's words at that time and what eventually happened in terms of the hacking of the DNC and people like John Podesta. And so those are two things that really stand out to me during the campaign. And then towards the end of 2016, he, he wasn't taking any questions from us. All these questions were being raised about, you know, um, sexual assault allegations, access Hollywood. And we were, we were cut off from Donald Trump from that point forward. And we really didn't have a press conference with him until January 11th of 2017 when you know CNN broke the story that the intelligence community had gone to the president-elect and said the Russians may have compromising information on you, on you, you need to know this. Uh, the existence of that briefing that they gave him was actual news. It was real news. When I tried to ask him about that at that press conference, that is when he proceeded to call me fake news. You are fake news, and that was sort of what launched us into this, you know, uh, crazy sort of back and forth that we've had over the last four years, um, not meaning just me and Donald Trump, but the press and Donald Trump, where he decided at that point, we were the opposition. He and Steve Bannon, I write about this in the book, it didn't take very long into the early administration. They determined that oh, who some of these uh, Democratic senators are, you know, uh, Steve Bannon talked to me about that. They don't know who Rick Blumenthal is. They don't know who some of these guys are. But they do know who Jim is. They do know who, is, who Anderson is. They do know who Jake is and so on. Let's go after the press. And that was the evolution of, you know, Trump and Bannon hearkening back to, you know, what how dictators used to describe the press and referred and said we should start calling them the enemy of the people. Yeah. In fact, the, 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 in the book you write, and I'll read it, it says Bannon, Bannon and you speaking. Bannon saying no one cared about the Democrats. They were out of power. That made going after the press essential. Trump needed a punching bag to continue to drive the narrative and own the coverage. The punching bag was the press. And so Trump and Bannon intentionally um, come up with enemies of the people as the slogan by which they are going to drive the narrative and, and, and own the coverage. And that's what, right. that's what, you, that's what you write uh, is what you confronted um, throughout the, the course of the early years of the, the Trump presidency. Is, do I have that right? That's right. And, and what people need to know is, you know, these aren't just words. Uh, when the president refers to the press of the, as the enemy of the people, the, the, the connection that I think some people fail to make 
is that when the president of the United States or any elected official refers to journalists or any segment of American society as the enemy, there are obviously going to be supporters of that politician, supporters of that president out there who are going to absorb that sort of rhetoric and then also want to direct it at us. And what we found and what I found uh, you know, happening time and time again is that many of the president's supporters, by the way, some in conservative media, but also just people out there on social media wanting to lash out at us, wanting to intimidate us, wanting to bully us to make sure that we understood that we were uh, pissing off the president of the United States. That manifested itself in death threats. I would get about, I, I've gotten about a death threat a week uh, since the beginning of this administration. That never really happened to me before. Um, they would come in on Instagram. They would come in on Facebook. They would come in on Twitter. Some would come into my email account threatening me and my family and so on. This not only happened to me, it's happened to many of my other colleagues. And it does put a chilling effect, I think, on what we do. And it got so out of control. And I write about this in the book towards uh, the tail end of the 2018 midterm cycle. You know, we had a self-described Trump supporter by the name of Cesar Sayoc sending pipe bombs to CNN to try to do harm to us. And when we dug into his social media uh, profile, we found out that he was directing, you know, some nine or 10 death threats at me. Um, there was a tweet that had an image of a decapitated goat attached to it. I mean, some really vile stuff. And, you know, it was at that point that I was starting to get, you know, major protection, uh, security protection at these rallies. I was going to Trump rallies towards the end of the 2018 midterm cycle with four or five bodyguards all surrounding me as I walked into these Trump rallies. And, you know, people might say, well, why continue to go to the Trump rallies? I didn't want people to think, OK, well, if we put enough of a scare in them, in him, he'll stop going. He won't go anymore. We'll affect the coverage that way. To me, it was a risk worth taking and saying, no, we're not going to do that. We're not, I'm not going to stop covering these rallies just because they're threatening us uh, and threatening me. And, um, but it does, it does go to show you, you know, how this, uh, this rhetoric that the president uses can be dangerous. It can have um, a toxic effect. You know, you saw what happened with the, um, the synagogue in, in Pittsburgh that was attacked by a mad gunman. And he was talking about uh, the caravan and so on uh, that Trump was talking about in 2018. You saw what happened in El Paso, uh, the shooting at the Walmart in El Paso, where a gunman went in there uh, and they found his manifesto and he was talking about the caravan and so on. And so we have to understand words have meaning, words have power. When the president of the United States goes after people individually and stirs up this kind of venom and vitriol and hostility, there can be real world consequences. Yeah, but there's something that you 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 talk about in in the book, which I found really interesting as it as it as it relates to this. And it, it came, I think, after Trump's first full press conference as president. I think it was January 2021. 20, um, and you and the, and you and the president um, have at it a bit. Um, and you can tell us a little bit about that. But you get a call after that from Hope Hicks. I think Hope's title then was like Director of Strategic Communications. She wasn't yet White House Communications Director. But she gives you a call and she says that she spoke to the president and he had a message essentially about you and, and, and him. She said, you get it. And so can you talk right. a little bit about that? Because I, 
that was so interesting yeah. to me. Yeah, you know, it was, it was interesting to me because there was a press conference. It was in February of 2017. Uh, it was, uh, you know, about um, three weeks after he came into office. There were questions about Michael Flynn, uh, the national security advisor. Uh, he had just been fired um, for uh, telling uh, lies to the vice president and others in the White House about what he was doing on those phone calls with the Russian ambassador at the time, uh, Sergei Kislyak. And we were all peppering the president uh, with uh, questions about this. And, uh, you know, during uh, the back and forth that he and I had, which went on for like seven minutes, uh, he said, I'm changing your name from fake news to very fake news. And people in the room had a good laugh and they thought that was funny. And um, I, I smiled. I thought, well, maybe he's trying to have some fun with this and lowering the temperature. And after the press conference was over, I get a call and it's from Hope Hicks. And she said, I, Jim, I just want you to know, I talked to the president and he wanted you to know how professional he thought you were today. And he said, Jim gets it. And I'm thinking to myself, I get it. What, like, I get what, that this is an act, that this is some sort of like uh, prearranged pro wrestling thing where, you know, I'm, we're going to go out there and he's going to body slam me and I'm going to put him in a headlock and, but he'll win the bout or something like that. Like what's, what is going on here? And so it, it seemed to me at the time that he saw some of this as an act, that he saw his fighting with the press, uh, going after us at rallies and so on as an act. Um, the problem, though, is that what he misunderstood ultimately is that this uh, isn't seen as an act by his supporters. Many of his supporters don't see an act. They think what's happening is not reality TV, but reality. And that is where I think we've gotten in so much trouble because whether he's, you know, putting on a show, whether it's an act for him, um, whether, you know, it's never been real for him, it's always just been a performance. That's, it, I don't want to say that that's beside the point, uh, but it isn't really necessarily the overriding, uh, overarching um, issue here. And that is when you put that kind of toxic rhetoric out there, uh, when there are people out there, millions of people out there who don't see it as an act, when you have allies in conservative media uh, who are willing to uh, amp up this rhetoric and uh, amplify it uh, to their millions of viewers, you know, I think you have the makings of a very toxic, polarized political culture. And I think that, you know, it has flowed from him. It has flowed from him and his allies by and large over the last four years. And it's gotten to us to this point now where he's not gonna, he's not accepting election results. We've gone from fake news to fake polls to in his mind, fake election results. Um, you know, none of this is, you know, in line with reality. Uh, and that is the other unfortunate thing in all of this. In, in addition to the demonizing of the press, it is the uh, obliteration of the truth. Uh, he has given up any uh, you know, in my observation, um, any kind of, uh, you know, allegiance or adherence to the truth in any way, shape or form. Um, and, and that just makes our, our job even more difficult. Yeah. You, you, you call him going back to like the origins of this, where this may have been theater, where he's trying to and use using Baden's words, drive the narrative and control the coverage and that you get it, that it's, that it's all about ratings and stuff. But you say that, and you called him sort of crazy as a fox. He, under, he understood um, what he was doing. There was no accident in this. Um, so, but 
he was successful. He was successful in the demonization of, of the press. And, and, and in order to do that, you have to understand the press. You have to understand why it is that when he behaved the way he did, he would be able to sort of drive the coverage in the way that he wanted and that the media wouldn't say, you know what, we're not going there. So what did, what did he what did he get? What did, what did he bring to his understanding from reality TV, maybe, or just from um, uh, an acute uh, student of, 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 of the way the press operates? What did he get that he was so successful in this demonization um, of the media? Well, I think he learned, uh, you know, by being outrageous. Uh, and this we saw this during the 2016 campaign and some of his advisors acknowledged this to me that he saw and his advisors saw that the more outrageous he was out on the campaign trail, the more he dominated the coverage, the more headlines he got. Uh, you know, he could uh, he, he could call into the Sunday morning talk shows on the telephone, uh, you know, something that the Sunday talk shows never used to do. They would always insist you had to be live in front of a camera. Donald Trump could call into the Sunday talk shows because he had that kind of control over um, the news cycle in the 2016 campaign. And he did this by and large with these outrageous remarks that he would make, uh, the uh, uh, crazy stuff that would go on at the rallies where you had people punching each other and that sort of thing. And uh, he, he was sort of like just as P.T. Barnum turning it all into a circus type of atmosphere. Um, and, you know, he had this ability to, con to control and dominate the news cycle uh, during the early years of the administration as well. I think it took some time uh, for a lot of us in the press to come to the realization that, you know, listen, uh, you know, some of the stuff that he's just throwing out there are just bright, shiny objects. Uh, you know, we can't go chasing these bright, shiny objects every day uh, or else, you know, we're never really going to get a chance to sink our teeth into the Muslim ban or what he's doing on immigration or what he's doing uh, with our allies and NATO and so on. And so to some extent, um, I think news organizations had to learn in real time how to how to cover um, this president uh, in, in, a, in a different sort of way. As I describe it in my book, a different kind of president calls for a different kind of playbook for journalists. And, you know, in the beginning, we weren't calling out his lies. Uh, we weren't calling out his, his uh, falsehoods. Uh, and I think what you've seen uh, evolve over time is... Uh, you know, we in the press are much more willing uh, to to call him out. And, you know, we have people like Daniel Dale at CNN, our fact checker. Uh, he, he, you know, he spends his days and nights <laughs> fact checking this president. Uh, and it's been an invaluable part of what we do. And so I think, you know, um, we had to learn. We had to learn uh, over time how to cover this president more effectively. And I think we've got it now. I think what you're seeing, we saw towards the a tail in the 2020 campaign where they, you know, this ridiculous Hunter Biden stuff was pumped out there. You didn't see the press latch onto those stories because where was the evidence? There was no evidence of any of these allegations that he was making. Uh, and now you're seeing during the um, election aftermath, this interregnum period uh, where they're making all sorts of crazy claims about what's happening in all these various states, but no evidence. Where's the evidence? You have to have evidence. And so, I think we've, we've become much more sophisticated uh, and have taken on sort of a buyer beware attitude uh, in covering this president because we, you know, fool me once, shame on us, uh, you know, uh, or fool, fool me once, shame on you, fool me twice, shame on us. And, and I just think that we've learned that lesson. Yeah. Yeah. I think it was Roger Ailes, uh, the 
sort of creator of Fox who said the media wants sizzle and not steak. And I think that's, it took you a long time to get from the sizzle to the steak. And, and Trump understood that you would chase these um, sizzles, you would chase these shiny objects and he would you know, essentially have the theater that, that, that he wanted. I do think that, that that's true. I, I do think, though, that, you know, what I tried to demonstrate uh, in covering this president um, and covering things like the immigration issue, you know, Stephen Miller coming into the briefing room in 2017 and, you know, trying to change uh, the na nature of immigration in this country, um, you know, hard questions were asked. And I, I tried to be as persistent as I could. Um, understanding that my job is not to get access uh, in this administration, but to get answers. And, you know, there were various different approaches that were applied by uh, a wide variety of outlets and, and reporters out there in terms of how they wanted to go about doing things. And I don't begrudge anybody for how they want to go about doing their jobs. But what I saw from the 2016 campaign on was in, in, in some ways a threat to the American way of life, a threat to um, the First Amendment, uh, to a sense of a strong and free press in this country, uh, to uh, the traditions that we have always held dear in terms of welcoming uh, newcomers to this country, not demonizing people who are different uh, this country uh, in ways that uh, I don't think we ever thought uh, were possible. Uh, and I, you know, I do think that there were lots of journalists, you know, I don't want to oversimplify things and say we were just chasing bright, shiny objects or that Roger Ailes is right. And all we care about is sizzle and not steak, because there were so many journalists, I think, who were committed uh, to trying to get answers uh, from the very beginning and holding his feet to the fire uh, from the very beginning. Um, was it perfect? Uh, did we always get it right? No, of course not. We're, we're journalists. We're human beings just like anybody else. We're also just sort of very different in, in how we do things, you know, in terms of, you know, going from outlet to outlet. Every outlet's different. Every journalist is different. But I do, I do think as a whole, we were put in a situation where we had to um, take a lot of punches, take a lot of abuse. Uh, but uh, some of us, like myself, felt it was important to stand up for ourselves and make sure that the American people will know at home that there are folks who are just trying to go about their jobs on a daily basis as journalists and getting the truth, getting answers and holding uh, the president and his people accountable. You know, my sense of it is, is that we couldn't have done it any other, any other way. Uh, you know, people are always asking us about what the Trump people are saying about us and Trump supporters are saying about us. I also think about what uh, people who are not in favor of the president would say, you know, I can hear them in the back of uh, my head, uh, you know, shouting, ask the question, ask them this question, ask them that question. Uh, you need to, you know, you need to hold their feet to the fire. We're not here just to um, do the news for the Republicans or, or, or the Democrats or people in the middle. We're here to do the news for everybody. And we have to keep that in mind. Yeah, and, and exactly to that point, let's. I'd like to go back just one second before we go forward, and 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 that's to November 9th. So uh, Trump mm -hmm. is uh, elected on November eighth. The returns come in um, late in the morning, four a.m. or something like that, and when um, Clinton uh, concedes. And you're in New York, 
and you have to do a live shot uh, 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 of Trump. Presumably, he's going to come down and, and, and talk, and you're, and you're setting up with your crew. At the same day, uh, that, that day, the anti-Trump forces are, are, are rallying in, in the streets. So you're setting up in New York, and, and people are beginning to surround, the anti-Trumps are beginning to surround you and what and they're and they're they're shouting at you. You write in the book. They're shouting at you. CNN elected Trump. CNN elected Trump. And, mm. and, and in an angry way that, that they felt that you you guys were somehow responsible for this in the way that you you covered him. The the it was mm. a rating grab and and uh, you gave him free wall to wall coverage that nobody else got. Can you talk a little bit? Because we've been talking about how Trump sort of had it in for you. But we should be clear that 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 you were getting um, in on both sides. We were uh, at some time, and I, you know, I, I will say, you know, at, at the onset of this answer, you know, I can't, you know, I, I'm not in charge of CNN, and so there are some questions that obviously have to be directed to uh, the higher ups. And um, but I do think that you know, uh, folks at CNN, other news outlets have acknowledged that uh, we probably did give Donald Trump way too much airtime during the 2016 campaign. And that is why you saw during the 2020 campaign, uh, we didn't air the the rallies end to end. Uh, We even stopped airing his uh, chopper talks uh, end to end, you know, towards the tail end of this this term in office for Donald Trump because they just weren't in, in line with reality. They weren't in touch with the facts. And, you know, I think we had to learn in real time that we can't just take whatever he says and put them on live television because, you know, as I, as I like to describe it, it, you know, you need a Surgeon General, a Surgeon General's warning often when the president starts speaking that uh, what the president uh, is about to say may be hazardous to your to the truth uh, and to your health. Um, and so, you know, things were learned over time. And that's why you saw during the coverage of this pandemic. Uh, when the president would get up there and say things on TV, you know, uh, we would go to a fact checking panel. I would be on that panel. And I remember the day when he suggested that Americans could inject uh, disinfectants into their body to ward off the coronavirus. You know, I remember getting on the air after he was finished and and saying to Wolf, uh, Wolf, we need to tell all of our viewers, please don't listen to what the president is saying. Please don't inject disinfectants into your body. Uh, Please don't try to do any of those things that he just said. He doesn't know what he's talking about uh, from a preventative standpoint. um, And and we shouldn't be listening to his medical advice. So um, absolutely. Were things done perfectly uh, from the get-go? No, we know that now. Um, But I do think, uh, you know, part of the, one of the issues is, is that we were sort of banging into decades of tradition of covering presidential candidates uh, and and putting out live coverage of rallies and putting out live coverage of press conferences. And for the most part, Democrat and Republican, I've covered, you know, I had covered four different presidential campaigns up until this fifth one, you know, up until the 2016 cycle, most politicians who were running for the highest office in the land, Republican and Democrat, were at least in the neighborhood of the truth, at least in the neighborhood of reality. And so there had been a tradition built up over time of covering those things 
as exhaustively as you could, uh, not quite C-SPAN, where C-SPAN just puts things on end to end. But, uh, you know, during our, our coverage, our uh, presidential campaign coverage, you're putting a lot of that out there because you want the folks at home to watch and determine for themselves what they want to do in terms of the direction of the country. And Donald Trump came, swoops into that picture and says, well, I can just say whatever I want. It doesn't even matter if it's true, if it's real. Um, but, you know, these these outlets will put it out there. And I think we had to learn over time that, you know, we had to hit the mute button. We had to hit the off switch uh, because, you know, if he is not going to be responsible enough to deal with the truth uh, and deal with reality and talk to people with some sort of faith to the facts, uh, then then, you know, the people um, in, in these news outlets, you know, we had to we had to decide, you know, listen, uh, people need to get the truth and the facts, you know, not what he's putting out there. So let's move forward. Uh, we uh, have so much to cover and, and, and so little time. But um, what, what's a hard pass and what happened to yours? Yeah. So the hard pass is a press credential um, that, uh, you know, I have uh, that allows me under the White House grounds. Lots of uh, reporters in Washington have press passes. Some go up to Capitol Hill. Uh, people in local news have press passes to go to the, their local police department, courthouse, uh, city council, and so on. Uh, you know, it, it identifies you to police officers as a member of the press. Uh, and so when you're out there asking questions or standing on a street corner, you shouldn't be harassed. Uh, you are, by virtue of holding that press pass, identifying yourself as a member of the press. And we have a tradition in this country of, of not harassing people who are just trying to do a story or, or put a news report out. Um, it got to a point, you know, during the Trump administration where they were getting annoyed with me and me being persistent and asking my questions, uh, that they started to threaten me and my press pass. Uh, Brad Parscale uh, tweeted at one point, this was months before my press pass was taken away. Maybe it's time to take away Jim Acosta's press pass. He can't behave himself at the white house. Um, and then in November of 2018, after, uh, the Republicans lost control of the house, uh, you know, I got into a back and forth with Trump over his comments about the migrant caravan heading towards the border. And uh, that was when he referred to me as a rude and terrible person. Um, a, a, an intern came over and tried to take my microphone away from me. And I sort of pulled back like, whoa, what's happening here? And uh, the White House uh, falsely accused me of uh, hitting or assaulting that intern uh, and said that my behavior was so reprehensible that they were taking away my, my hard pass, my press pass. Um, we at CNN, uh, you know, obviously we were not going to let that lie. Um, and speaking of, of lie, uh, Sarah Sanders, I should point out, uh, tweeted out a doctored video of, uh, me, you know, pulling back from the intern, trying to take my microphone away. They had sped up the video. Uh, people are familiar with this. They sped up the video to make it look like I was karate chopping, the intern, there was no karate chopping. Uh, and they had borrowed this video from InfoWars and Sarah Sanders, the White House press secretary, tweeted it out. Anyway, so we go to court uh, to get my press pass back and a Trump appointed judge sided with us, sided with CNN, um, said that that video that Sarah Sanders tweeted out was garbage and uh, said, you know, essentially on procedural grounds, the White House should not have taken away my press pass. They did not notify me in advance. They just flat out told me, you know, we're taking away your press pass. And um, the judge in that case said uh, that they didn't 
follow any kind of procedure and, and can't do that. That was a violation of my civil rights. Uh, and that, you know, when you're on the White House grounds, there is a presumption of having um, First Amendment rights and that the White House was at risk of violating those rights as well. And so it was a good day for the First Amendment. It was a good day for the freedom of the press, I think, uh, and that the administration's decision was reversed. Um, they went after a colleague of mine, uh, Brian Karam's press pass. They tried to do that to him. They were unsuccessful in that. But it just goes to show you that, you know, the lengths that they will go to to try to go after journalists uh, in this administration. Obviously, that has a chilling effect on the rest of the industry. Um, but I think, you know, the courts siding with uh, news outlets and journalists is a good thing uh, and, and, you know, a silver lining uh, in all of this, because, you know, here on forward, it's going to be difficult for future administrations to retaliate against the press in that way. Yeah. And what was interesting to me is you, you get into this back and forth with the president about these caravans. They try to take your, your mic away, which is problematic in and of, of itself. And then essentially on pretext basis, take away your press pass and you, and, and, and you go to court, you hire, um, Ted Boutros and, and, and Ted Olson, who, who offended you, which is, you know, another, and, um, you, and, and the matter is pending. Amicus briefs are being filed. Others, other press organizations are, are, are siding with you. And, and what was heartwarming in a sense um, was that Fox News and Everybody else all joined in, in support of you. So political differences were put right aside in favor of the integrity of the First Amendment and uh, Fifth Amendment procedural due process, which the judge found was violated in your case. Yeah, and that was uh, that was really gratifying. I mean, um, you know, I think when the uh, chips were down, everybody realized, okay, we could be in that boat too. And I think Fox realized, listen, in a future democratic administration, they, they could be in that boat. And, you know, one of the things that I think uh, that came out of that whole, um, you know, episode is, you know, a recognition that, you know, you know, we can't have, uh, and this was something that they, the administration was arguing in the court, um, you know, you can't have an administration or a White House trying to pick and choose who covers the White House. Uh, that obviously would put a chilling effect on what we do. Uh, it would fly in the face of decades of tradition in this country of, you know, news organizations deciding who they're going to send to the White House and so on. You can't give uh, the government veto power over which journalists come over and, and cover the president. So um, that was that was certainly gratifying as well. Yeah, and, and, and kudos to Jeff Zucker, um, who supported you. He could have said, look, Jim, let, let's take a break. You've got Pam Brown there. You've got Caitlin Collins there. They're, they're capable journalists. You know, yeah. why don't you, you know, cover something else? But Jeff, the head of, uh, of CNN, said, absolutely not. We're, we are not going to give an inch on this. So I think yeah. kudos to, to CNN for that as absolutely. well. So, nope. um yeah. So we don't have much time left. And I know that people want to know what the hell is going on now. You know, so Biden is Biden is is, is the president elect. Um, 
and um, the president himself is is sort of hunkered down in 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 the White House, uh, putting in what what the media likes to call loyalists, and he's in this sort of state of denial. But and you're there every day, and 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 you're talking to people off the record. So tell us about the mood. What is what is it that is going on there? We only can yeah. see you know the president, but we can't. We don't have the behind the curtain look that, that that you have. Well, I you know I've talked to so many people who recognize that this these challenges are going nowhere. That he doesn't have a case. Uh, these advisors see this, and Republicans up on Capitol Hill see this as uh, sort of the last flailings of Donald Trump as president of the United States. Um, and they're letting him go through these motions. Now, um, there is a part of the president who believes, I'm told, that he was cheated, um, that there was some fraud that occurred, and he wants to root that out and, and hold it up and say, see, I was right all along. There is there is voter fraud. Um, he has come to the recognition, I have been told, that he's not going to be able to close these gaps with Joe Biden in these in these various states, and certainly not in the popular vote. Um, but he is still on this uh, quest to try to say, I told you so, there has been voter fraud, um, something that the press has fact-checked him on time and time again. There, There is no widespread voter fraud in the United States. That's been proven over and over and over again. Um, and it has been talked about. People like Ben Ginsburg, longtime Republican election lawyer, has said there isn't widespread voter fraud in the United States. Uh, Republicans have looked for it for, for decades. They haven't found it. Um, but the president is, is doing this, um, I think, in part because I think he sees this transition period as a political opportunity. He has talked about wanting to run again in 2024. And in some ways, he's using this lame duck period to kind of lay the groundwork for a comeback run for the presidency. And he can use the mechanics, uh, the levers of power um, to try to begin to set that table. And so I do think that's a bit of what we're seeing right now. We're, so, we're sort of seeing the beginning stages of the 2024 campaign unfold during this very bizarre and tumultuous transition period. Now, um, that, may, that, that may be uh, interesting to, to talk about and speculate about, but there are some real world, world consequences. One is the incoming president's administration is getting a sh you know, the short end of the stick in terms of intelligence briefings for the president-elect. Uh, in terms of uh, coordinating with top health officials about what is going on with development of a coronavirus vaccine and getting this new administration in a position where they can hit the ground running in January of 2021. So while the president is, you know, chasing um, dark shadows, uh, you know, you know, in, in pursuit of some kind of um, election fraud that he can hold up and say, I told you so. Um, at the same time, you know, the American people are kind of witnessing in real time uh, one administration really weakening um, a, a, uh, an incoming administration. And, and it is something that we haven't really seen before. We talked, you know, we talked earlier about breaking norms and traditions. This is another one that Donald Trump is shattering and we're all watching it in real time. What is supposed to be a peaceful coordinated transition of power 
is being violated by the outgoing president. He is because he's got sour grapes and so on. Um, you know, this feeling of sour grapes and so on. He, he is lashing out and acting out in ways that are detrimental to this, what has been a tr tradition of uh, peaceful transfers of power in this country that we've had for generations. The, the interesting thing, Monmouth came out with a poll yesterday, I think it was, where they said half of the Republicans or half of the people who voted for Trump, half Republicans, believe that the election was rigged and a third of the country does as well. So uh, is right. this the crazy as a fox behavior that you're sort of describing that this, he knows he's not going to win and other people telling you, we, we know we're not going to win, but if we can leave office with this half of the people thinking, half the Republicans thinking that, that he was cheated, he then gets to come back in, you know, sort of in some sort of on a white horse trying to reclaim that which was stolen from him? Is, is that what they're that, telling you on the White House grounds? I think there's some of that at play. And I do think um, what has always animated his uh, base uh, has been um, dividing the country, um, you know, pitting one set of Americans against another, has always amped his base, has always energized his supporters, and he's using this period right now to do the very same thing. It may be a deeply destructive thing that he's doing, but he is seeing political dividends in the long run because uh, he, you know, he is seeing county canvassers in Michigan who are willing to do uh, his bidding. He is seeing um, political supporters in Pennsylvania and other important states uh, do his bidding. Um, he, is, he, he has the Republican Party in kind of a headlock right now. Uh, and I don't think he wants to let that go. If he were to be like George H.W. Bush or Jimmy Carter and say, you know what, that's it. I lost, uh, you know, no hard feelings. I'm going to ride off into the sunset. Um, he doesn't, you know, he doesn't have control of the party anymore. Um, by dragging out this fight, by dragging out this battle, you know, by hook or by crook, um, he keeps that base, he keeps the party lockstep behind him. It is a it is a power grab. It is a it is an attempt to keep the Republican Party uh, locked in place behind him. And I've talked to uh, advisors who say he wants to run again. He um, and he sees what is happening right now as an opportunity to kind of clear the field. Um, you know, he, he obviously people like Nikki Haley, Marco Rubio, Ted Cruz, they cannot match what Donald Trump has in terms of a hold over the Republican Party. If Trump bows, uh, bows out and says, that's it, I lost, I'm out of here, that opens up a space for the Nikki Haley's of the world, the Marco Rubio, Rose, Rubio's of the world to step in and say, we want to be the next um, leader of this Republican Party. Uh, Donald Trump does not want to let that happen. He wants, at, at least I'm told at the moment, he wants to be in charge of this party and he wants to be seen as the um, presumptive, you know, front runner uh, heading into the 2024 race. Yeah. Brian Stelter uh, tweeted the other day, um, coming soon, colon, a restoration of normal relations between the president and the press corps. And, and we have a question, um, which is, what is the coverage of Biden going to be 
like now? Someone on the left I was reading said, well, now the liberal media will just take a nap after brunch and, and we'll only have Fox to um, rely on to, to hold Biden's feet to the fire. How do, you, mm. how do you see this playing out? Is there a honeymoon period? Um, how does the animosity get tamped down? Yeah I, think what, yeah, I think that's what Brian was referring to. You know, I think Brian was referring to how we're not going to have this open hostility uh, directed at the press that is so toxic that, uh, you know, people are getting death threats and it's just out of control uh, all the time in that regard. Um, I, I think Biden presents an opportunity to sort of cool the temperature somewhat, but make no mistake, um, you know, when President-elect Biden becomes President Biden, he's going to have to answer questions. Uh, there is going to be an expectation on the part of news organizations here in Washington that he is going to have, you know, in addition to his uh, photo opportunities where he's talking about this, that, and the other thing, that he's going to have to take questions from reporters. And those questions are going to be difficult questions. They're, and they're going, to, they're going to be asked in a way uh, that they may not like at times. That is what we do. That is what I think the American people expect. If the American people can see that process uh, underway, you know, just sort of a normal journalistic process, you know, holding government officials accountable and so on, I think it gives people a sense that, you know, that the train is still on the rails, uh, that the country hasn't gone off a, off a cliff. Uh, and, you know, I do think um, that it may, to some extent, and I'm glad you asked this question. It may, to some extent, um, tell Republicans, send a message to Republicans, send a message to some of those Trump supporters out there that the, the role of the press doesn't change depending on who's in office. And if they can see reporters like myself, or perhaps I won't be there, perhaps it'll be other colleagues of mine holding Joe Biden's feet to the fire, I hope uh, and pray that that will cool some of the passions that have just been inflamed and gotten out of control during the last four years. Uh, that is something that I, I just hope and pray for uh, heading into these next four years, that people see the role of the press as sort of unchanged, that we're there to hold people accountable. We're there to look out for the taxpayers. We're there to look out for the American people. I describe the press in my book as defenders of the people. Um, and I think we've had to do that during this pandemic to make sure people got accurate, reliable information about what's happening with this deadly, uh, deadly virus. Um, so that has to continue uh, as we head into these next four years. Yeah, I, I know during the litigation, Sam Donaldson, who famously held other presidents feet to the fire, said to you, Jim, keep it up. So as we roll into That's the Biden right. administration, if you're still there, uh, we, can we say, Jim, keep it up? Sounds good to me. That's my plan. All right. Thank you so much. This has just been so instructive. That Said is produced by Compro and the Museum of Public Relations. Theme music by Sam Post. Please let us know your thoughts by writing to us at thatsaidzeldin at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening. For that said, I'm Michael Zeldin.